Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and now at 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. We're podcast all over the known universe. And if you're listening by podcast, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out all our shows under the Beyond Politics banner. We cover the known political universe and beyond. Well, we're recording this show on Monday before the Tuesday midterm election and what a wild ride it has been in this election season and what a crazy time it's likely to be tomorrow, Election Day, and uh, for the nation and New Hampshire thereafter. Uh, it is with really um, a warm heart uh, and great appreciation that our guest um, is going gonna, is gonna to talk to us about what's going on in the state, but Really, I really want to know about him, the man, the myth, the legend. Carlos Cardona of Laconia, New Hampshire, is our guest. Carlos, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Well, thank you, uh, former Congressman Paul Hodes and somebody that I admire. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, you know, that just shows the depth of your political skills to start out by flattering, flattering your host. It's really smart, makes me feel great. Um, it's good for our audience. At least they know that one there's one person who remembers that I used to be somebody. And now I'm here talking to somebody who really is somebody with a lot of uh, political acumen in the state, somebody who I think Carlos represents the 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 next rising generation of important leaders in our state and important democratic leaders you know in in preparing for the show i um went looking on the interwebs um even at my advanced age i know how to do that and and i found this the this article that i remember reading from 2019 in the washington post it was a really long article about you and touting your political power and uh, i just i i want to read from it a little bit and then we'll we'll jump into our conversation it said uh and this is remember 2019 so it's three years ago Cardona, 29 years old, five foot five with the slender build of a jockey and 14 years, years removed from his native Puerto Rico, is the production director for a telemarketing firm in Laconia, New Hampshire, a struggling former mill town of 16,000 located in the state's mostly Trump-friendly county. He's also the chair at the time of the Laconia Democrats, an outspoken advocate for LGBTQ plus rights and an unlikely New Hampshire political mogul. In a state that is 94% white with a higher median age than any state save Maine, this youthful Latino has leveraged a time-worn local tradition, New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation primary, to accrue astounding political power. So, as a as a person of astounding political power, take me back to your roots. Um, where were you born? Um, what was life like? Tell us about your family. Tell us about your early life, your education, and the things that 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 started to form the Carlos we know today. Um. Again, thank you. And, and I just want to address it. It's how I was raised and the reason why I use your title. My grandfather, who had ran many times unsuccessfully for office, always said, uh, make sure you acknowledge his, 
people's accomplishments because they never come easy. And so that's, that's always been something stuck to my heart. Not, you know, I don't try to like, uh, give pats in the back to people. It's just mostly, we all come from somewhere and we, it's, we struggle to get there. So I think it's important to acknowledge. And I think you were a phenomenal congressman. I'll never forget when marriage equality was a hot topic and you had to make some tough decisions at a state that was very purple, kind of leaning red. Um, and you listen to your people and especially to those of us in the LGBTQ community. And I appreciate that. Um, sure. So Carlos Cardona b- was born in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico, also known by its native uh, indigenous name, which is Aymacos, uh, Borinquen. Um, and I like to say that because I do come from an indigenous background, um, indigenous person. So I like to make sure that we acknowledge the territories who it belongs to. Um, so that's where I was raised. I was raised in a village called Campo Alegre, which translates literally to happy camp in English. Honestly, I didn't realize how, how much poverty there was in our village until I really moved to the United, to the United States and realized, you know, wow, we were, we, we, we didn't have a lot, but we were very happy people. We grew up celebrating whatever little things we had. Um, we collected rainwater. We didn't really have running water. Um, electricity was very rare. And I remember those were the issues that my grandfather was fighting for in our village. And in many ways he was the head of the village, uh, at Christmas time. So technically Christmas starts November 1st for us, Puerto Ricans, we start decorating, uh, Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, even though we do celebrate Thanksgiving because it's been an American colony thing that we have imported. Um, there's no such thing of Thanksgiving for us because, you know, we don't believe in like the pilgrims landed in the Northeast and didn't land in Puerto Rico. So that's not something we, <laughs> you know, we really focus too much on. Um, but Christmas for us starts November 1st. And so, you know, I grew up with a family, very Roman Catholic. Um, I went to a, a public pri- uh, primary school, elementary school. Um, and then how many kids, uh, you know, how many, how many kids were in your school? Was so in my school, school, oh yeah, it was about five, five, six hundred kids. Um, and there's, keep in mind, our city has four, had at the time, four elementary schools. Mm. Um, each one had about 500 kids. Um, I grew up in a household where, you know, it was 36 cousins. Um, I had two brothers, uh, seven aunts and uncles. We literally lived in the same house. Um, and like I said, we grew up very poor, but at the time I didn't realize it. I thought, you know, it was a beautiful world. We, we, we had mango trees in the back rivers, you know, the whole paradise there, except we didn't have the, uh, you know, the, the electricity or running water and some of the things that I didn't know existed. Cause when you're a kid, you only know what you see in front of you. So uh, a very was loving there television. Was, um, there, was, there t- was there TV? So we didn't have a TV till I was like 10 years old maybe nine years old, if I recall correctly. And I remember we had an antenna that we had to go and fix on top of the, uh, of the roof. Cause that was about a, um, we didn't have cable or anything like that. And our city did have cable. We just couldn't afford it. So, so antenna was the thing for us and it was fine. We, we, we grew up fine. So, <laughs> so can I just, I just want to stop you for a second, just to set the yeah. picture. We talked about your city where there are four elementary schools, but you grew up in a village. Was that a village near the city within the city? So it, it's within the city. So Aguadilla is a town of a uh, city of 63,000 people. 
Yeah. Our village has about a thousand people, give or take, depending on the year. Um, and it's, and it is within the city of Aguadilla. Um, and it's a, if you really want a, a better picture, picture of a shanty village on a hill. Um, yeah. and that's, there is no running, there's no roads. Um, it's just stone steps. Um, we would walk those up and down all day long. Maybe that's why I, I'm so fit. So many years of walking up and down the hill, uh -huh. um, groceries, the same thing. Uh, you know, you go walk to the grocery store and then you walk a couple of miles up the hill with your groceries. And there was enough of us kids that we would all grab a few bags and get groceries up to the house. So, um, and we raised chickens, we would sell our eggs for 10 cents a piece. Um, and we would do that on the way to school, um, drop them off at the market and then go to school and have breakfast at school and get our day ready. So our day would start about six in the morning. Um, just to be in school on time by 8 a.m. Wow. 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 So that was elementary school. It's a it's a it's a it's a really uh, great picture that you've painted of where you grew up at, at when while you were still there. Um, did the village get electricity? Were there changes that you saw before you left and came to the United States? Yeah, I mean, electricity growing up, there was no electricity or barely any electricity in our village. And then we went to, by the time I left, we had running water and electricity. And again, when I say running water and electricity, it's not to the standards that we are uh, we're used to here in the United States. Um, you know, you might go a week without running water or electricity, but then it comes back for three weeks and then it disappears mm. again yeah. the same way it came. Um, and those were some of the things that I grew up going to political rallies. My grandfather and his allies in the village just fighting for access to these things. Um, you know, mail, because uh, there was no roads. So the post office, sometimes the mail workers, the mail carriers were afraid to maybe go into <laughs> these villages. So it was important. Um, you know, these were things that he was fighting for that I grew up, um, you know, just witnessing. Hmm. So um, a lot of cousins, it sounds like a big extended family. Um, and, and, uh, a way of life that is far removed from your current circumstances and the circumstances of, you know, everybody in New Hampshire, really. Um, and, and, you know, the issue issues around um, Puerto Rico, uh, uh, not only statehood, but the way Americans view Puerto Rico, uh, how Puerto Ricans view um, the United States mainland, um, are 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 often in the news. Uh, Puerto Rico has unfortunately um, had some really bad weather events with climate change coming. Um, there's been devastation on the on the island um, that uh, is still, as I understand it, not repaired. Um, uh, including the the strength of recent hurricanes has really um, pounded. Um, that the whole the whole neighborhood, but uh, Puerto Rico has really suffered in terms of its electric grid. Um, we famously, at least I famously remember, or remember famously or infamously, the former president of the United States, the great Orange Cheeto himself, you know, tossing rolls of paper towels to people as if um, he was, I don't know, feeding corn to pigs. Um, and that's probably 
the way he viewed um, people in Puerto Rico without much appreciation um, for the culture, the life, the, the people there. Um, uh, talk to us a little bit about what that has meant for um, your native land and, and those, you know, your family who are still there. Yeah. And I mean, that's something important also to mention. Most of my family, I would say 90% of my family is still in the island. Um, only a few of us moved here and I moved up here to the United States when I was like 11, 12 years old. Um, so shortly after our village started getting electricity and water. Um, so, I mean, Puerto Rico has been unfortunate event after a fortunate event. And, and of course the lack of leadership in the island doesn't help the situation. Um, I, I just want to mention for sake of conversation, the, the, uh, the Republican Party of Puerto Rico has been in charge during these catastrophes, which has led to austerities and, and of course, the, the, continue, the continuation of the falling infrastructure in the island. Um, so, yeah, I remember right before Hurricane Maria, um, we, I, I talk to my dad every single day. We have a very close relationship. I either text him or we send pictures of our of my kids and him of Puerto Rico so that I can continue to see where I'm from, which I love seeing. And I remember him and I having a discussion like the night of any before a hurricane saying, hey, just be safe. Do you have enough water? Do you have everything you need? My dad at the time used to run a, a chain of uh, grocery stores called Pitusa, which are very known on the island. And he was one of the managers and he was in charge of making sure the region was good. He's like, yeah, I checked the stores. Everything is fine. We're, we're good. And I said, okay, it's looking like a pretty big storm. He said, well, you know, nothing that we haven't uh, dealt with before will be fine. And I said, okay, sounds good. So I'll talk to you tomorrow, hopefully. And so tomorrow came Hurricane Maria hit and the island completely lost service. Like there was no running water, no electricity, no internet, no, uh, a lot of cell phone towers had collapsed. Um, so I kept calling and calling and calling different relatives. And as, because I have so many relatives, I have so many people that I can call. And I called everybody that was on my phone book and including my childhood friends who live in different part of the island um, and nothing there was no connection at all whatsoever. And then I just was relying on news from the Spanish channel. And then essentially, and then eventually the uh, big chains like CNN, MSNBC and Fox news started covering what was happening down there. So I was able to get English information, which sometimes mm. it might be a little bit more accurate, you know, based on what's happening down there. So mm. I realized how bad it was and the pictures started coming and videos and I was like in tears at this point because I knew that my dad and I hadn't gone a day since I was 12 years old, since him, him and my mother had a divorce without talking. So oh. I knew that something bad had happened. And so at this point, it wasn't really until almost two weeks out that I had the first phone call. And it was from my, my stepmom. Evelyn, who lives in the island with my father, they've been married for many years. And she said, I only have a few seconds to tell you, um, your dad is in the ICU. Um, there's a lot of dead people everywhere. Um, there we're running out of food. We're running out of water. Um, it's like literally the apocalypse. And I remember those words and being shocked and like, I didn't know if I should be angry 
happy that I heard from her. Like it was mm. just very traumatizing. And so yeah. at this point I, I looked at my mom and I said, we need to do something like I can't, this can't just happen. And then I, of course, started seeing, you know, Donald Trump on the news, you know, saying Puerto Rico surrounded by water, lots of water. So it's hard for us to get there. And, and to me, you know, I became even more furious because I'm thinking to myself, we can invade Iraq in 24 hours, but we can't manage to get to Puerto Rico that is 200 miles from Florida. In hours, like we, the, the, the most powerful military in the United States, uh, in the world, and we couldn't, I, I just had a really hard time believing him. And obviously I was always skeptical of him. I, you know, for the record, I voted for Hillary Clinton. It was a strong supporter of Hillary Clinton. It was a delegate at the state convention for her. Um, but I, I just, to me, I, I really thought that even if there was such a person like Donald Trump, that still the president of the United States would rise to the occasion and at least do something. And I just, at that point, I realized we're screwed. Um, this is not going to get any better. Yeah. Well, you've got, look, you've got a white supremacist colonialist in Trump um, uh, exercising the kind of ignorance that he was well known for. And I'm sorry to say that, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say that uh, um, Puerto Rico deserved much, much, much better. Um, and uh, hopefully under the Biden administration, if the same thing happened, the response would be very, very different. Um, it doesn't take much to be a humanitarian, um, no matter what party, whether you're a Republican, an independent, um, a Democrat, a Green, it doesn't, you know, po politics should stop when humanitarian crisis uh, unfolds. Um, it's yeah. uh, and unfortunately... Unfortunately, um, and we don't really have to dwell on it in the Trump administration, that didn't happen. Um, we're going to no, take and I just want to add real yeah. quick, if that's Go OK. Ahead. Yeah. Um, similar to Hurricane Maria did happen. This last hurricane that hit Puerto Rico devastated yeah. the island. Yeah. Flooding like never before happened. And um, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, did do a much better effort to the point that way less people died, not that anybody should die anyways during a hurricane, but the response was way different and much better than anything Donald Trump ever did. Um, we're going to take a break uh, in a, in a, about a, a minute and a half, but I'm, I'm just curious, when you came here at the age of 11, did you come with your mom? Yeah, I did. And, and actually, at first we came, it was a, a whole family, my two brothers, myself, my mom, and my dad. Um, it was right after about a six months, we moved to Buffalo, New York, which is where I lived for four years of my, my first four years here in the United States, where I learned English. And I owe those teachers an incredible amount of gratitude and, and just love for everything that they did for me to like have the success I have today. Um, but my dad wasn't as successful finding a job. He didn't speak in English. There was no education for adults to learn English. So he had a much rougher time, which led to their divorce here. And my mom decided to stay. My mom has had cancer since I was about 11 years old. And it was the reason why we moved here. The hospitals in Puerto Rico were not able to take care of her. If they actually said that if my mom had stayed in the island, she would have never made it past me being 13 years old. 
Uh, you gained um, national attention uh, through this article in the Washington Post during the campaign of 2020 and 2019, um, when there was this long article posted about your political acumen and the fact that you managed to sort of make Laconia kind of ground zero in some ways for the presidential campaign. Laconia has been a town um, that's a pretty fascinating community, um, very wealthy on one end with lots of second homes and the beautiful lake, and also a struggling mill town. Um, when I was a congressman, I remember marching in parades and um, I, you know, I'd been in New Hampshire a long time by then. The first trial I ever did as an attorney was in in Laconia. So I, I, you know, I I knew the community, and I remember uh, marching in the parades as a congressman and thinking to myself that um, Laconia really needed a hand up. Um, that uh, it was a place that that um, needed some change, and uh, I saw a lot of poverty. As I as I went through the community, and you've you've lived there um, now uh, uh, a long time. You're in a committed a relationship with uh, your partner John Swain. Um, you have are raising a beautiful daughter, um, the light of your eyes. And uh, in 2019, when you opened your home to a succession of political candidates. And it seemed like everybody was waiting with bated breath. Who's Carlos going to endorse um, for president in, in 2020? And, and we'll get there. I'm not even, for those people who don't know who Carlos endorsed in 2020, I'm just going to sort of leave that nugget to the side. But talk to us a little bit about that experience. How had you gotten to the place where the Washington Post was going to write a major article about you? Um, I was shocked, actually, because I don't think, you know, I'm doing this out of the pain that I've gone through in my life. And because I love this city, I graduated from Laconia High School from the adult education program. Um, and I saw so many kids during that time, they were going through similar things that I had gone through homelessness, domestic violence, LGBTQ, homophobia, like everything that you can imagine was in those classes, you know, low income kids. And I just saw there has to be a better path forward. And I saw how much this city looked like the rest of America. Yet presidential candidates, you know, would come to New Hampshire and skip this whole city. And I'm like, you know, this is ground zero. This is where Republicans win and shouldn't because they don't do anything about the issues affecting people every single day. And of course, I'm very loud and I'm outspoken. Um, and I love talking to people and getting to know them and their story. And I felt like they needed to be heard. Um, so at the time, this was not something I was looking for. Um, I was just involved. I had ran for office in 2018 um, unsuccessfully. And in 2016, uh, the, la the, the chair of the Laconia Dems at the time, Kate Miller, who's happening to be running this year for Senate in, in New Hampshire, in this district, which I am very excited to be voting for her tomorrow. Um, she was a longtime friend and ally and role model and somebody had taught me so much. And she's actually a former state representative for Laconia. She said, I, she had bought a house in Meredith and she's like, I have to move and leave Laconia Dems, but you know, I think you would do a phenomenal job. You have learned a lot from me and it would be great if you would take over. 
And so, you know, I talked to the committee, the committee, you know, Honorable Dave Hewitt, who is very well known in the community, Charlie Sinclair, the late Honorable Phil Spagnuolo, who was a dear close friend of mine. They were like, this would be amazing. We need young, energetic, involved people running the committee. And I said, well, I'll give it all I have. And I was very interested in just lifting the local voices. It just happened that while I was lifting local voices, I was also telling my story and why I was involved in politics. So I remember going to meet my first presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, and he loved everything I had to say about Laconia. And he said, yeah, we'll come to Laconia. So he came. And of course, uh, then other candidates started hearing about what I was doing up here. And I think they became a little bit jealous of the attention that they were getting on social media. I do have a, a good following on social media. And I think people were loving so much uh, what I was posting and what I was saying about the candidates and how we as Democrats can have different opinions, but come together and how we can love different candidates yet still at the end of the day in November, vote together. And people love that. And so people started following my follower, started my follower count started increasing. And of course, because of being in New Hampshire, the power that New Hampshire has to lift any story, um, I think that added to all of this. Um, so then the next candidate was a little bit more controversial. And that was the first controversy I had to deal with, which at the time was Congresswoman uh, Tulsi Gabbard, mm. uh, who's still controversial to this day. She, um, has since, time, she has since left the Democratic Party. Correct. And so at the yeah. time, you know, the taboo was she had said a lot of anti-LGBTQ things. And a lot of my friends and allies were trying to look at me and say, how are you going to handle this? How are you? You you've said that you're going to you said that you're going to uh, host all the candidates. Um, but so the uh, how do you so how are you going to juggle all of that? You know, how do how are you going to juggle all of that? How are you going to juggle hosting her yet at the same time? Um, deal with the fact that she has been anti-LGBTQ. And I just remember having an honest conversation with Tulsi and just, I, we were in her car having a ride from one event to another. And I told her my coming out story. It, and, was, a long, it was a long ride too. It was, it was, as the article describes, a two hour ride um, that you were on with her. So that was, that's a long time in a car with a presidential candidate. Yeah, I had I had asked her that in order for me to host her, I needed to have a conversation with her long enough that I could feel comfortable bringing her to my community, doing my duty as chairman, while at the same time as an LGBTQ man and advocate in my community that um, that she could hear, you know, our side of the story and one one story out of many that are happening in the United States. And I remember having, you know, some tears as we were telling the story. I felt it was genuine. Uh, she showed at the time, which actually I'm one of those people has been shocked by her behavior, even though some political pundits say this shouldn't be a shocker to a lot of people. To me, it was because she had shown that she was willing to grow. But, you know, humans change one way or the other for good or bad sometimes. And unfortunately, she's taking a turn for the for the worse. I think she could have grown a lot and she could have been a voice for some people in the Democratic Party that maybe feel left behind. Obviously, she can no longer do that. She has discredited herself. She has hung out with people that are dangerous to my community, not only to Laconia, but to LGBTQ people here in the state and, and to democracy. You know, she claims to be a patriot. And yeah, you can serve in the military you all you want, but that doesn't really make you a patriot if, and this is my opinion, 
if you are, you know, hanging out with people that don't believe in our democracy, that don't believe our elections are fair, that, you know, that are election deniers, such as General Don Bolduck, uh, such as Carolyn Levitt, you know, and, and the list goes on and on and on, you know, she keeps endorsing worse after worst. So, you know, my opinion here is, um, you know, that's so anyway, so that's, that's one of the people that I got to host next. And then before we knew it, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was coming here. We hosted her. And then, you know, essentially the last one, the last candidate we had uh, hosted, which was now President Joe Biden. Um, and I remember, but it was always very interesting, the conversations we would have in private and which essentially led me to who I was going to endorse at the end. And just to for the for the big reveal. But before we get to the big reveal, uh, at the time I was working uh, as the New Hampshire um, uh, manager for an out of the box candidate, um, Mary Ann Williamson. Uh, fascinating experience, which I haven't really talked about at all publicly. But one of the things I can say is that I made sure that um, we wanted to go to Laconia. I wanted her to see Laconia. I wanted her to meet you. And I wanted her in your backyard. And as I recall, you know, we were able to arrange a, a visit and she came um, and she spoke and you were a very, you were a very gracious, you were a very gracious host to a, a fringe candidate um, who was really out of the box in comparison to most of the, to all, I'd say, of the uh, experienced political candidates. So, um, yeah, uh, and I appreciate she, she, she was grateful. I, I appreciate you bringing her here because that was part of the story for what made Laconia who Laconia is today. You know, if it wasn't for every candidate coming here and lifting our voices, it was necessary that everybody came. Not only that, you know, since we're talking about who is Carlos Cardona, you know, I love underdog stories. Um, and hence the reason why I was happy and eager to get all the underdogs to come here to Laconia, because Laconia is an underdog story. It's a city that is not the largest in New Hampshire, so, so it doesn't get always looked at. Um, and, and a lot of times it gets forgotten. And it's, and it's my story. You know, I come from a village that got forgotten many times. I, in my communities that I've lived in, oftentimes Hispanic and LGBTQ people are the last ones that the government goes and looks for and helps out, you know? So to me, I think it's important, um, you know, that any candidate that is running, and I think that's what the, the democratic thing to do is that they all get a fair shake, get a fair platform to represent themselves. And I'm glad that you were even willing to step up to the plate and represent a candidate that maybe a lot of people weren't, you know, listening to at the time, you know, and, um, you know, I, I think it's important. I, I think it's important that we as Democrats truly behave and say what we preach, which is a democratic value that everybody gets listened to and everybody has a seat at the table. I think that one of the most important values that Democrats hold, and it's now pretty clearly contrary, and a contrast to um, what is called the Republican Party, but is now, frankly, just a cult. Um, it's a it's a cult of prejudice um, and denial, uh, and unfortunately, of hate. Um, and in this in this difficult environment, where we may see Republican victories tomorrow, of people who 
uh, frankly, hold unimaginable views um, or views that were unimaginable a short time ago, that our elections don't don't matter. And if, I, if I'm running for office and I lose, then it was a fraud. Uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And it's okay to hate and to use violence um, in service of these, uh, frankly, white supremacist um, views which exclude uh, the humanity of people. As Democrats, we believe in the dignity and worth of every human being. Um, and the dignity, uh, dignity and worth of every citizen. In the current really challenging atmosphere, um, you stand out as, as a Latino um, uh, and as a gay man uh, uh, and as an outspoken political activist. But Konya is a particularly interesting place. Um, Democratic mayor, um, lots of Republicans, um, been in the news for Republican officials from the area who've posted anti-Semitic views and, and other challenging views. How is it, how's it been for you as the political atmosphere has gotten more divisive, more divided, um, and less civil? Um, how, have you how have you managed and what do you see? I mean, it wasn't always easy. When I first ran for office here, which I had won in Franklin, New Hampshire, by 46 hey, votes. Hey, I'm in the middle of radio. Uh, it was, you know, it was tough. I, I had I had no political support. I, it, it was more me and some neighbors knocking on doors and trying to make things happen. Um, racism is still very well alive and, and doing well in the state of New Hampshire. Um I don't think it's the majority of New Hampshire by any means. I recently was uh, a victim of uh, threats by a white nationalist here in the state of New Hampshire, hoping to intimidate me and stop me from getting involved, which is not going to happen. Um, I'm not the only one. There's other BIPOC leaders throughout the state that are going through the same thing. Um, but I think there are some really amazing people that are focused on lifting one another. And I have to say the mayor of our city, Andrew Hosmer, who is a former state senator, just an amazing ally and friend. Like he's like a brother. Um, this guy has been a rock for many of us when we've been going through these tough things and we just unite and get together and, and try to lift the voices that are doing the, the good work here in, in Laconia. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a fan of naming when things happen. You know, and that anti-Semitic and racist um, situation happened here in Laconia, which is obviously very unfortunate. You know, our, our, our representative, Don Johnson, was responsible for that. And then that claimed ignorance, which I don't know, you know, English is not even my first language. And I could tell that that was anti-Semitic. Um, so to me, you know, these are the people that the people have been representing and partially we are to blame for that in many ways because we stopped going into certain communities here in New Hampshire. And I made it my business and my job to go to these little communities and even some big communities that, you know, we as Democrats just sometimes either forgotten or just discounted because not intentionally really, but just the resources are limited. You know, we're in a state where we're outnumbered sometimes when it comes to funding, you know, millions of dollars coming from Mitch McConnell and his allies just to defeat us here. So it's not even Granite State money. Um, so, you know, there are people like Granny D that came before me that I have to give credit. There's so many great leaders that came before me that 
we're fighting to stop this kind of money to coming into our communities. And I just want to remind everybody, Granny D was from here, from this community. So wow. I, these, I didn't, these, I did, I didn't know that. And yes. I, you know, I got to campaign with her during my first campaign. I, I, I ran twice before I was elected and I ran first in 2004. Now that's ancient times, but I ran <laughs> side by side with granny D we, we went to events together. Um, and for those of you who may have forgotten or don't know, granny, granny D was uh, the nation's, one of the nation's most outspoken and leading advocates for campaign finance reform. She believed that that big money, big dark money, was uh, the bane of the democratic, uh, the democratic system. And she walked across America at a very advanced age um, to bring attention to the power of money and and what it brings. And you know, in our politics today, uh, when all bets are off, we have seen the devastating power of dark money and millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent to lift up uh, candidates who espouse uh, un-American values and to uh, defeat those who care about American democracy and the sanctity of our vote. Um, it's a problem which is rarely talked about today. And given the makeup of the Supreme Court, probably um, uh, there's not much that can be done. But folks, if you care about the integrity of elections, if you care about the sanctity of vote, if you care about the dignity and worth of people, you've got to elect people who understand that it's about people, not the money, and um, and and vote tomorrow as if your very lives depend on it because our democracy does. Um, that's just a little ad for voting tomorrow. Because in New Hampshire, we do a really good job of counting the votes. There is, I would say, no voter fraud in New Hampshire. Um, if there ever has been, there may have been one case or two cases. And the only case I remember recently is of some Republican who voted twice here and in some other states. So yeah, if you want to call that voter fraud, that's fine. But New in New Hampshire, we care about our elections and our votes. But meanwhile, Carlos, back to your story. I I, I told you before we got on the air, I sometimes <laughs> just I just can't help myself. Um <laughs> before we got on the air. Um, here we are um, talking about what America has become and the mid what the midterms can mean, because the polls are telling us that in many of the races that are that are that are on the ballot and in New Hampshire, folks, remember, everybody runs every two years at the state level. Wild swings uh, can happen. Um, waves can happen. Uh, it, it's hard to legislate with long-term uh, vision in mind because of the every two-year elections. Um, but there are democracy is a sport here. I mean, we really, we really do democracy. When I tell people out of the state that we have 400 state representatives in a state population of 1.3 million, they look at me like I've got six heads. But there are people on the ballots, up and down the ballot who are espousing crazy views, just crazy views and prejudiced views and are uh, adherents to the cult of Trump. Yet the polls say they may win. What do you see going on? Why is this happening? And what has happened to common sense? Yeah, 
you know, I, I, I think there are several things going on um, in the state of New Hampshire, but I, I have to say, I see something completely different. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I still want every Democrat. I, I put a quote yesterday on my, on my Twitter, Twitter account saying, you know, Democrats to stay home, elect Republicans to take our rights away. Um, so that says a lot about our state. So I think it's about getting out the vote. You know, I've been knocking on doors for the past seven weekends um, all over the state. And the reaction has been unanimously at every door that I knock on that has been, we can't let these free staters win. Um, so I think there is something differently happening here in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is very well known for doing that compared to the rest of the country. We always buck the trend. But I also have to give credit, you know, I was a big critic of our chairman back in 2020 election um, on how the elections were handled during the pandemic. I have seen a huge amount of growth and change in our party. I see that leadership has listened to all the voices involved in the political process. And I, I just see such a, the New Hampshire Dems, it's like, well set up. Uh, the messaging is great. Uh, the, the, the amount of people knocking on doors, you know, here in Laconia, we were lucky to see 12, 10 people knocking on doors before we're seeing 30 and 40 and 50 people knocking on door. So yesterday we had a, you know, canvassing uh, kickoff and here in Laconia, and it was great, the energy that was in that room. So I do think that New Hampshire is going to buck the trend nationwide. That said that, you know, we, we have no control what's going to happen in Arizona and places like there where, you know, things look not so great. Um, and, and I think we have a lot to learn as a nation. You know, we Democrats are really good at winning an election when we're the underdogs, but we've, we're not that great when it comes to fighting for our seats. And um, so we just need to learn those things. We need to learn that messaging matters. We need to continue, you know, organizing is a continuous event. It's not something that just happens three weekends or four weekends before the election. You know, it's like here in Laconia, uh, it's an everyday thing, you know, everywhere you go, where you go grab coffee, your bartender, your, your waitress, you know, you need to talk to these people like your life depends on it. It can't just be the weekend before election. It needs to be every single day of your life. And you need to make people see how their job is affected by Republicans being in leadership and how their wallet is affected. You know, and I think the reason Republicans have been successful you know, I had an argument the other day with Maya uh, uh, on Twitter. She's the uh, communications director for New Hampshire GOP. How she said, you know, Republicans are going to save us money. I'm like, well, I, I'm not buying that. They've been in charge for four years now. Our taxes have gone up. Our electricity bill went up. Um, so, you know, we just need to be better at pointing out like exact detailed because, you know, most people are busy. They're doing their jobs day to day, they don't have time to go read up, you know, on politics sometimes. So I think it's important that, you know, every day, every opportunity, every interaction you have with people, it needs to be, hey, just so you know, how are you doing? Like, this is what's going on in our world. And this is what these leaders are doing. People that are in our backyards, you know, such as Don Johnson and Richard Littlefields that have been literally taking money away from our public schools, yet their kids take advantage of our public school system. So, you know, it's highlighting the hypocrisy and making our neighbors see that these people are not good for us. They, they're, they're not well-intended. Ladies and gentlemen, Carlos Cardona. <laughs>